Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Let's now stand for the reading of God's Word. We'll turn to 2 Timothy chapter 1. This is the word of the Lord, it is eternally true. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God according to the promise of life in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God, whom I serve with a clear conscience the way my forefathers did, as I constantly remember you in my prayers night and day longing to see you even as I recall your tears, so that I may be filled with joy. For I am mindful of the sincere faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am sure that it is in you as well. For this reason I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated. The Apostle Paul is the author of these letters to Pastor Timothy. His first letter, we, which we just worked through, was it was likely written from Macedonia to Timothy, um, who, you remember, Timothy was staying behind in Ephesus to strengthen that church, to put structure uh, in that church, in that city. Again, the, the, um, the first letter to Timothy was, was likely written after Paul was released from prison in Rome, uh, that's the imprisonment that we read about at the end of the book of Acts. And, um, and so that first Timothy was, was written after that release and when he was going about his final um, missionary work. The date was probably around um, 62 or 63. Uh, the second letter of the Apostle Paul to, to Pastor Timothy was written under different circumstances. Um, it's important to understand as we go through this letter that the Apostle Paul is certainly contemplating his own death. He's, he is thinking that his death is imminent. Chapter 4, verses 6 through 8 make this clear. He says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. And we also, and so, so it's clear, he, he thinks he's, he's, his time has come. We also learn that his imprisonment is not like the house arrest that he was under previously. If we take these verses literally, it appears his imprisonment is much more cruel and dark this time. Um, he says, The Lord grant mercy to the house of Onesephorus, 
For he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he was in Rome, he eagerly searched for me and found me. Um, And so his imprisonment this time is not house arrest. It seems to be he's chained in a prison and is awaiting his execution. What was the date of this letter? Probably around 66 AD. And it's fairly clear that the Apostle Paul was martyred by the Emperor Nero, as was the Apostle Peter, um, in around 67. Uh, It appears clear throughout this letter that the Apostle Paul is aware of his coming death. He speaks like a dying man to one of his closest brothers in the faith. You know, we place a, a great deal of weight on the dying words of our loved ones. We remember our last conversations with them as if they were ordained by God for our lasting remembrance, for our encouragement. Um, The biographies of our brothers and sisters in the faith often include their final words, um, either as they peacefully die in a bed surrounded by loved ones or as they die in the flames as martyrs. Read Fox's Book of Martyrs for memorable examples of this. Um, In a similar way, we read Paul's second letter to Timothy as his deathbed words, his final thoughts as a servant of the Lord to another servant of the Lord. Um, This letter was Paul's final letter. And he can look back over his life as an apostle of Jesus Christ and think, he, think of this, can think back on his life of service to Christ and think about Jesus' words to him at the very beginning of that service. He is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Amazing how those words are fulfilled uh, time and time again in Paul's life. Now, finally, by way of introduction, let me say that when we come to the ends of our lives, what do we or what should we care most deeply about other than our personal faith in Jesus Christ, and that's obvious. Now, those dying are often concerned about the next generation, right, and their, their strength, right, how they will carry on after their father's and mother's departure to the next world. And this is a major theme in this book, right? The Apostle Paul is handing on the torch to Timothy, and not just to Timothy, but to those that Timothy would teach and that those that Timothy taught would teach others. And he, so he's, he's encouraging Timothy to do exactly what he's doing, make disciples who make disciples. Paul writes in chapter 2, You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Right, so to summarize, we have the dying words of a servant of the Lord in prison to the next generation of servants to the Lord who will suffer, who will suffer for Jesus' name. And so the apostle begins the letter with, um, with mention, as is his norm of his calling. Paul, the apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of life in Christ Jesus. 
So though, think of this, though he sits imprisoned, contemplating his, his imminent death, Paul still rejoices that God has called him. He still makes mention of the fact that this is the calling of God. He has not set aside his hope because his circumstances are disastrous. Right? He may have chains on his wrists, hunger pangs right, that numb his mind, and rats nibbling at his body as he tries to sleep. But he remembers that the Lord's call is upon him, that the Lord's call is upon his life, and notice what it says, the promise of life in Christ Jesus, as he puts it. Right, He has known that his work for the Lord, he has known that, that he must work for the Lord. But what filled his soul with peace at that moment was not his work, was not all the things he had done, which he had been suffering, but the promise of life in Christ Jesus. He remembered the teaching of Jesus. He who loves his life loses it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it to eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will also be. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Right? He who loves his life loses it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it to eternal life. No one in their right mind would enjoy imprisonment in one of Nero's prisons, right? He isn't at that moment thinking of the legacy of the Apostle Paul. He suffers and his only solace at that moment is the promise of God's salvation of his soul through Jesus Christ. That is the joy of the Christian. Is that your joy? Salvation of your soul in Jesus Christ. Is that your joy? That should be the joy of the Christian, not, not the delusional and escapist joy of the worldling who has to think, you know, who has to think that this life is all joy and all glory and all running from one neat thing to the next neat thing. Right? No, this life is suffering. And those who come to hate it have a vision of the ravages of sin, right? And the greatness of the Savior who has transported them out of death and into life, right? Your back pain is miserable. Good. I hope it leads you to hate your life in this world and keep it to eternal life, right? Your loss of children, of spouse, of loved ones is of, of parents is painful. Good. I hope it leads you to hate your life in this world and keep it to eternal life. In other words, I hope it leads you to put all your joy in God alone, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In God alone. The Apostle Paul is being poured out. He's being poured out, but... A, what awaits him is the crown of righteousness. Is it more important that you enjoy life or that you receive a crown of righteousness? Right? Which is more prominent for you? I mean, which is more prominent for you? As you think through your actions and, and your pursuits and your thoughts, 
your pursuit of the enjoyment of life or your pursuit of the enjoyment of God. I mean, I have to pause and think that through and examine myself and look through my actions and look through the things that get me excited, my motivations. Right? I have to pause and really think about that, which is sad. Which is more prominent for you as you think through all those actions of the past week? Your pursuit of the enjoyment of life, your pursuit of the comfort of life, or your pursuit of enjoyment and comfort in God? For, for all of us, may it be the latter. May our joy be in God, not in the passing pleasures of the world. May our joy um, we have here, the joy we have in this life, be rooted in the ultimate joy of knowing God and being known of God. Right? That is lasting joy. That is worthy of, that's worthy of all the delay of our gratification. Right? That is worthy of persevering through whatever we may suffer in this life. That makes sense, right? And it makes sense to you if you know the glory of God. If you know the remarkable glory of having your sins forgiven. How is it that we can, we can take pleasure in you know, the increase in the stock market and forget about the fact that in Jesus Christ, our sins have been forgiven. That's sad. Can we give, you know, can we say to God, give us more suffering? like that of the Apostle Paul, if it means we will know more of the love of God. Give us more suffering if it means we will know more of the love of God, more of a longing for righteousness, more of a delight and a joy not in this world, but in God, in Jesus Christ himself. What did Paul's calling as an apostle earn him? Well, it earned him sufferings and whippings and shipwreck and stoning and loss of friends, right, and hatred, what sustained him? What sustained him? The promise of life in Jesus Christ. That's what sustained him. Our lives will follow that pattern too. If you don't believe that, you've bought into the lie of all the advertisers that have been whispering myths to you. Right? Heaven is to be had now <laughs> because you're going to die. Heaven is to be had now. Quick, get it, because you're going to die. No, suffering is to be had now because you're going to heaven. That's what scripture says, right? And we live together in the church. Wonderfully, we live together in the church so that as we suffer, there are those who can come alongside us and remind us of the glorious promises of God. Remind us of the hope that we have. We're a bunch of suffering sinners who come together frequently to be reminded of God's goodness and faithfulness. How easily we forget those things. And that's why we come. Without faith and and the church, I'd be drunk this morning. I'd be drunk. Right? And you would be too. Uh, With faith... And with the church, our suffering is 
glorious. It's simply momentary light affliction producing an eternal weight of glory. Right? This is is Paul's hope. He sits enchained, and yet he hopes in Jesus Christ. You sit enchained, too, in the things that you've suffered, and yet your hope should be in Jesus Christ. Verse 2, the Apostle Paul writes this letter to Timothy. And Timothy is described as Paul's beloved son. My beloved son, he says. The bond of love between these two men, men who had worked together, men who had suffered together, men who had traveled together uh, for the sake of the gospel, was intense. It was very tight. They are close. The Apostle Paul had encouraged Timothy remember, to be circumcised, and he won the argument. And, and knew him since he was 16 years old. That's when he started, about 16, started serving along with the Apostle Paul. He had been there at Timothy's ordination, had laid his own hands on Timothy. He had ministered um, with him along the missionary journeys, had mentored him, and now was writing this final letter to his beloved son, Timothy, right? No doubt this was the Apostle Paul's spiritual son, as close to his son as the single Apostle Paul would ever have. It, it is his concern to leave him not just with marching orders, but with encouragement. Encouragement. Notice how our passage goes on and spells out the closeness of their friendship. Paul, in the second half of verse 3, says, I constantly remember you in my prayers night and day, longing to see you, even as I recall your tears, so that I may be filled with joy. What a glorious friendship, right? What a wonderful friendship that they had, like that of David and Jonathan, um, whose love... You know, the love between them is described as being better than the love of a woman. And and that makes me think, what a loss that we do not have friendships between men like this today. That we've lost this. Um, We think it's strange that Timothy would cry when departing from Paul. We get uncomfortable with it. And that Paul would write that he longs to see Timothy. You know, shame on us that we think that way. We've allowed the homosexualists to steal the rainbow, right? And now we are letting them destroy male friendships. Men are, all men today are scared of being called out as homosexuals that they're so scared of it that they've shunned friendship between men. We may, uh, we may be for mentoring and all of that, and, but... You know, but notice the closeness and the commitment of the mentoring that the Apostle Paul here is engaged in. We might, you know, keep our mentoring business-like so that emotion doesn't enter into it, that closeness doesn't develop. Um, And that's terrible. That's terrible. Our commitment to one another in love is being stifled because unconverted men want to sexualize male friendship. Should we, should we care about that? Should we overcorrect to avoid appearances? I mean, should we not love one another as Christ loved his disciples, as David loved Jonathan, as Paul here loved Timothy? Might we be able to show our emotions to one another? 
right? And, and write to one another about our relationship without it being a tacit request to sodomize one another. Of course, of course. We, should we be able to greet one another with a holy kiss and it not be uh, interpreted as a sensual act? Of course, and we must. We must. Wait, right, we must. Um, and we must do this for the very man who is tempted by homosexuality. He must be shown that a touch is not something that's always sensual, that there can be holy touch. Right, And we must for every man, no matter what his temptation, because friendship is a powerful blessing from God. It's a powerful blessing from God. Paul and Timothy had a friendship, right? And that's not to diminish their relationship. I use the word friendship to increase the meaning of that. Paul and Timothy had a friendship, and each would have accomplished less without it. Now, the friendship of men, you remember one I mean, I think about it, and it's like it won the Second World War. The friendship of men, the camaraderie of men that, that is dying today. And here we see the Apostle Paul pouring out his heart to his, his son in the faith, Timothy. I long to see you, and Timothy, when he left, cried. And it's sad that we would shun such things today. And it's our loss. We've lost friendship between men. Now, Paul writes, stepping back a bit, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is, this is Paul's typical opening and blessing. He doesn't mention the Spirit or many other things that he could have asked as a blessing here. That's okay. It's impossible to mention everything every time, though many people would demand that. He opens with this blessing, and then he just turns to the encouragement of of Pastor Timothy. Verse 3, I thank God as I remember you in my prayers night and day. Paul is sitting in prison thanking God. First of all, remember that. Paul is sitting in prison awaiting his execution and he's thanking God and praying for Timothy. Why is he doing this? Because he knows that thankfulness to God is a guard for our hearts. Thankfulness to God is a guard to our hearts. He's likely prone to despair. He's prone to unthankfulness. He's prone to put his mind on the things of the earth, right? Chains around his wrist. He had written to the Colossians during his first imprisonment this. Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. Keeping alert in your prayer with an attitude of thanksgiving. So thanksgiving is the way that we keep alert in our prayers. Without thanksgiving, think of this. Without the thanksgiving, we become dull. At best, and selfish at worst. Without thanksgiving, we enter prayer with those itemized orders and expect quick shipping. Right? We want it uh, in two days or less. We become dull to God's abundant answers to prayers. We forget to honor him with thanks and give him glory for his provision. Right? Thanksgiving puts us in the proper place and puts us in our proper place. It reminds us that we are utterly dependent upon God. Thanksgiving puts everything in perspective, reminds us that God has been incredibly gracious to us. So if you're in prison, metaphorically, not like Paul, give thanks. Guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus by presenting your requests to God with thanksgiving. 
you'll find your when you give thanks, you'll find that you're able to endure more suffering. You'll find that you're more helpful to other people. You'll find that you are less and less selfish when you attribute all your good and all your gain to God. Um, Doug Wilson says, honoring the past is the right way, in the right way, by giving thanks is the best way to prepare for the future. Honoring the past in the right way is the best way to prepare for the future. All right, that's true. Now, now the Apostle Paul also says this about him himself in verse 3. I thank God whom I serve with a clear conscience the way my forefathers did. Now, first of all, what forefathers is the Apostle Paul talking, talking about? Does he mean the patriarchs? Does he mean Gamaliel? Um, who taught him the Jewish faith? Does he mean Ananias? Well, usually the, the word Paul uses here for his parents it means his parents and his grandparents or his familial ancestors. But I think he, he's connecting his Jewish upbringing with the Old Testament patriarchs. And that, that's what he says in Acts 24. But this I admit to you, he says, that according to the way which they call a sect... I do serve the God of our fathers, believing everything that is in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men cherish themselves, that's the Jews that were accusing him of storing, uh, storing up dissension, that there shall certainly be a resurrection both of the righteous and the wicked. In other words, the Apostle Paul is saying that there is true continuity with the Old Testament and the faithful forefathers found there exist in, exists with faith in Jesus Christ and followed Jesus Christ. He's not, in other words, he's not turned to another God in following Jesus Christ. But he has continued in good conscience to worship the one true living God as those forefathers did. He's continued to worship Yahweh, Jesus Christ, the triune God. Now, what does it mean to have a clear conscience? Why does Paul mention he serves with a clear conscience? Clear conscience means to be aware that one has not gone against God's commands, right? To be aware of that. A bad conscience would be one that is burdened with the knowledge of having broken God's commands. Uh, with, with that bad conscience comes guilt, comes sadness, comes eventually and hopefully a repentance. The Apostle Paul has served God with a clear conscience, he has done what God has commanded him, even as his forefathers had done, even as Abraham had done, even as Moses had done, even as Joshua and King David had done. They too served the living God. And Paul, in serving Jesus Christ, the Son of God, does that same thing. Jesus commanded him to go to the Gentiles, and he's done it. He's done it. His conscience is clear. He has expended his energy in this life to that end, the service of Jesus. I mean, what glory, no? What glory to think back and have a clear conscience before God in doing as he called you to do. There's, there's a joy in serving God, and one of the parts of that joy is most wonderfully a clear conscience. To live for God, to live in his service, in whatever kind of vocation, whatever kind of life status, you know, he's called you to is one of the greatest joys in this life. Serve God with a clear conscience. Again, remember Paul's context. Many may be mocking him for being imprisoned. 
Many may be saying this is God showing his disfavor to you, Paul. Some may be embarrassed by him, but his conscience is clear before God. He does not care what others are saying about him. His conscience is clear. No one can take that away from him. They can attempt to belittle him. They can even kill him, but he knows the peace of a clear conscience. Now look at where the Apostle Paul goes with Pastor Timothy. He reminds Timothy of his own ancestral faithfulness. Right? He says, For I am mindful of the sincere faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am sure that it is in you as well. Paul is saying, look, at, look to your grandmother and your mother, Timothy. Now, let's think about that for a moment. The Apostle Paul attributes a line back um, for the faith of Timothy, and he traces it through his mother back to his grandmother. And they were Jewish women who believed in Jesus Christ as the promised Messiah. And from that, Timothy was brought up in the faith as a covenant child. What is odd about this is that Timothy's father is not mentioned. His father is not mentioned. All we know about Timothy's father is that he was a Greek man, not a Jew like his mother. In Acts 16, we read this, Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra, and a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. And he was well spoken of by the brethren who were in Lystra and Iconium. All we can be sure of is that his father was a Greek man. He may or may not have been a believer. Um, our translation and, the, and the, the Greek there uses an, advertis, an, an um, adversative, um, and, and it says, but his father was a Greek after saying that his, his mother was a believer. But again, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't spell that out. That could just be contrasting with Jewish. Um, and so, regardless, Paul attributes the spiritual maturity of Timothy to the faithfulness and the faith of his mother and grandmother. Um, which leads me to this exhortation. Mothers, mothers, do all that you can to impart your faith to your children. Mothers and grandmothers, that is your calling. Right? Do not underestimate the importance of showing and teaching your children what you know to be true from the Scripture. Right? Oh, the Father's the spiritual head of the home as taught in Scripture, and that is essential. But that spiritual headship should insist that you pour yourself into teaching your children about Jesus Christ. It may be the slow burn of your faith, mothers and grandmothers, that influences your children rather than the intense and obnoxious outbursts of, of your father, of the father, of your husband, right? Um, men have a tendency to, to, um, to be up and down and um, to be zealous and then not zealous, um, to be engaged than not engaged, whereas I find that mothers, or at least the mother of my children, is much more steady in her faith and less extreme than I. And it may be that slow burn of faith that leads your children to Jesus Christ. It may be the strength of faith required to be a mother, that, that steady vision 
um, that our child receive of God's faithfulness and provision. And, and remember this, Timothy is not a girl. Timothy is a boy, was a boy in his mother's household. It's through his mother and grandmother that he became the useful tool to Timothy uh, was for the Lord Jesus Christ. Titus 2 does have instructions for older women to teach younger women, and this is necessary and normative. But mothers, give God gave you some young men to raise, right? And you must be faithful. You must give yourself to them in a motherly way. Those boys need your affection. They need your discipline. They need your care. They need your teaching. And they need to see you live your faith. Right? When you hurt, they need to see you pray. When you rejoice, they need to see you sing praises. When you receive, they need to see you thank God. And when you lose, when, you, when, you, when God takes something away, they need to see you trust him. Right? Will you be a Lois or a Eunice to your children and your grandchildren? What a joy. I mean, what a joy to see mothers leading their children to Christ. What a joy to see mothers who prepare their sons for the service of the ministry. Right? Good fathers are important. Good fathers are hugely important, but no, ever, no one ever said that meant, you know, good mothers are unimportant. Why people think I say that all the time is just boggles my mind. Um, the attack may be on today on fatherhood in our culture, but that does not in any way diminish the importance and power and the goodness and the, the God-givenness of motherhood. So mothers, make sure your children close with Christ. It may be you that leads them to close with Christ and not their father. Preach the gospel to your children, mothers. Preach the gospel. Exercise the authority over them that God has given to you, right? Show them your faith, and may God prepare our sons and daughters to be useful in his kingdom, as Timothy was useful because of the faith of Lois and Eunice. It's wonderful that their names are mentioned here, forever you know, memorialized in this passage. Lois and Eunice. Let's name our daughters Lois and Eunice, right? Let's not forget these names. So we'll pick up from here when we gather again next week, Lord willing. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the, the relationship that Paul had with Jesus. We thank you for the relationship that Timothy had with Paul. We thank you for the relationship that Timothy had with, with Lois and Eunice. We thank you that all of those relationships, most preeminently the first one with Jesus Christ, led to your glory. Father, may our relationships be to that end. May they bring you glory. May they honor you. May they lead to the worship of you. May they lead to the making of disciples of Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.